This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for November 18th, 2020. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor, and today as well by Charlotte Hoag, who's joining us from Norway. Dr. Hoag is an infectious disease physician. She was the longtime editor of the Journal of the Norwegian Medical Association, and for the past several years, she's been the international correspondent at the Journal. Charlotte, thank you for joining us on this podcast and providing us with a European perspective. But before we get to the situation in Europe, there's big news this week. Two of the COVID-19 vaccine trials have announced early results, and they're both remarkably good. Lindsay, I know that you were involved in one of the trials, so I'll ask Eric and Charlotte to comment. Steve, it's true. We've learned quite a bit about some of these new vaccines, but it's important to realize, of course, that what we've learned comes from press releases. None of the primary data are available yet. And in fact, I think much of the primary data remains to be analyzed. However, the news is very impressive. Both of these trials were event-driven, meaning that they both had to wait until a sufficient number of recipients of either the vaccine or the placebo got ill because their endpoints were all symptomatic disease. They needed numbers so they would have sufficient power to detect roughly what their vaccine efficacy was. That was expected to take a while, but because of the uptick in cases, both trials accrued patients much more rapidly. And in fact, we heard about preliminary results from one of these trials just last week. And in the course of a week, it actually completed their trial um, just a few minutes ago. At the time that we're taping, they reported the final results of their trial, again, incompletely analyzed. And all these results are striking. Both of the vaccines showed efficacies of greater than 90%, and they were both described as having no remarkable safety signals. Remember that these two vaccines are very similar. They use a similar technology. They're both messenger RNA-based, and they both encode a very similar construct. But the trials were done completely independently. One was conducted under the auspices of the NIID, and the other was conducted by the manufacturer. The fact that they have very similar results, both in safety and efficacy, is very reassuring and makes it very likely that we can have confidence in the signals that they're seeing. Of course, there are caveats, there are preliminary results, there's more to be analyzed, and we'll learn a lot more about it. And of course, we'd love to see the underlying data so we can help interpret them ourselves. I believe that both trials have not reached their predefined time point for safety. So we still have to wait a bit to get the final safety data. So it will be important to look at those data, but the news is about as good as it could be right now. Yes, Eric, I completely agree. I mean, it's just press releases, but still, it's really um, as good as this can be at this point. But I'm very much looking forward to seeing the real data. That will be important for all of us all over the world. Of course, bringing up all over the world, Charlotta, reminds me to say that this is step one. This is a big step. Without this technology, we couldn't hope to have the problem of distributing the vaccine. But now we do have to manufacture it, distribute it, figure out how that's going to work, figure out how to get people to take it. And that is going to vary from place to place quite a bit. The availability will vary from country to country. And the enthusiasm with which it will be received will undoubtedly vary from country to country. I'm curious, Charlotta, what do Norwegians and other Europeans think about vaccination as a strategy? 
right now it's you know very positive so of course there are the usual safety concerns and it's important right now that this is taken seriously because my interpretation is that right now people are very positive it has to do with europe more or less being locked down you know so we need ways out <laughs> At the same time, we had some problems with H1N1 vaccine 10 years ago, side effects of the vaccine that was deployed universally then in Scandinavia in particular, so that, you know, there's some concern. But overall, I think, you know, people are positive. But when you look outside of Europe, we also have to think about things like pricing, things like both these vaccines, as I understand it, needs two shots. So that is actually a big disadvantage when you think about distributing it uh, all over the world. And uh, there are also ongoing discussions, I guess, also in the U.S. about things like patents, whether there should be patents on these vaccines at all. India, South Africa, many other countries are now pushing for patent laws to be not used in this case. And I think this is also part of the distribution, of course. I mean, if this is going to take half the budget for the healthcare system, there would be no vaccination. Charlotte, I completely agree. We have to come up with a path out of the massive transmission that's going on. And there are different tools that we have from lockdowns to masks, to respiratory etiquette, to physical distancing. And then hopefully additional tools will emerge that we can have confidence in like vaccines. And so I think all of these will have to be used together and used together in a way that is optimally acceptable to the community or the society it's being applied to. But we do need to get our communities open, children in school, commerce happening, all of the things that enable our societies to be successful. But we can't do that by ignoring SARS-CoV-2. We have to do it intelligently, mitigating transmission and the health risks of transmission while enabling our societies to get functional. Yes, and the vaccine is one part of that. And I think it's a, a very good example of how you have to balance something that looks scientifically effective and the trust that people need to have, which is extremely important in this case, because if you misuse that trust, then we will lose a lot here. It's not only with the vaccine, but it's a very clear example. If we now push these vaccines and later some big side effect that we could have seen, uh, we have to be very open about those possibilities. Otherwise, we may lose a lot in this fight. I think. Charlotte, you raise a issue that many of us think a lot about, and that's vaccine hesitancy. And I think that it's trust, transparency, and teamwork to enable us to believe in new technologies that emerge that can be beneficial. But we have to be transparent with our community to understand the state of the evidence at a given time. Otherwise, we do risk that trust. And I think vaccine hesitancy is a real potential to impede the success of application of new technologies like vaccines. So these aren't the only vaccine candidates and mRNA isn't the only avenue that's being explored. What do the results of these two trials mean for all the other candidates that are also in trials? Well, this isn't the end. And it's important to remember that this is a race that likely will have more than one winner. It's true that the first vaccines out of the gate were the ones that are easiest to develop and easiest to manufacture. And those include the mRNA vaccines that we saw and, and probably those based on adenovirus vectors 
are somewhere shortly behind that. But there's plenty of need. And as we were just discussing, we are not going to be able to fill that need necessarily with any one or two vaccines. And so I think there's going to be enough room for others. And we don't yet know if there are particular advantages or disadvantages of one type of vaccine. Do some of them produce longer lasting immunity? Are some of them safer in specific groups? Will some of them be effective after only a single dose? And until we know those results, it's hard to know which vaccines are going to be right for any particular population. I think there is one important piece of good news. All of the advanced vaccines are based on the same target, the viral spike glycoprotein, that is the target for the mRNA vaccines. And most of the vaccines, not all of them, but most of them have elicited very similar, at least antibody responses to that protein. So therefore, I think there's good reason to think that many of these vaccines are going to be effective, although that remains to be seen. One small caveat is that we don't yet know the role of cell-mediated immunity and protection elicited by these vaccines, and that probably will vary from one construct to another. Eric, two thoughts. One is, I'm not sure we know the correlate of protection, period. So I think we have to be careful about knowing exactly what we should do to advance things to global distribution. The efficacy trials are most important. The other comment I would make is I'm not sure there's a winner in my mind as to who gets there first. The need is for billions of people to get more protection against SARS-CoV-2. And the question is, how do we as a community, a scientific community, a civil society community, develop those countermeasures for billions with all of the caveats about safety, efficacy, special populations? But the winner, I hope, is science and global interaction to fight pathogens and that we together can rise up and do that quickly and continue to improve the process. Yes, that's really nicely put, Lindsay. And I think uh, if we can use this opportunity to show that science is actually really useful and that we are open and that we are also open to, as I think you put nicely previously here, that so vaccine is just one part of the response to the pandemic and that we show, especially the global population, that it's not only the vaccine, but all the other measures too, that we are going to push forward in a good way to show that we want to protect not only by vaccination, but for example, by testing and providing treatment and all of those things. They have to go together so that it doesn't seem like we're only sort of pushing one solution. That I think will bring us a step back. So, Eric, you mentioned earlier the large uptick in cases in the United States in recent weeks. The same sort of thing is happening in Europe, although, of course, it varies from country to country. Charlotte, what's the situation in Norway at the moment? So, the short answer is that the situation is very good. We have only had 300 deaths so far since February. Only 1,500 admissions to hospital. We are, of course, a small country, 5 million people homogeneous population, and with a lot of trust in government. So people were happy to sort of be locked up (laughs) um, uh, in March. But now, as cases are again surging here and everywhere, the medical situation hasn't really changed. We still have very few admitted to hospital, very few. But we have a lot of restrictions, and there are lots of protests now growing in Norway. So Norway has been, 
unusual Charlotta within Europe. Europe is certainly experiencing a sharp rise in the number of cases, while Norway has been relatively protected. What's different in Norway? <laughs> the Norwegians? <laughs> it's, uh, you know, we are very sparsely populated. We were a wealthy country. We were very lucky in the beginning. I think we also have to say that. The imported cases came from Austria, Italy. People had been skiing, uh, came back. And then relatively quickly, we locked down and people got compensated and it wasn't a lot of protests. So we sort of got the cases down and then we got into spring and summer like the rest of Europe, but we like to be by ourselves. <laughs> so it's like very easy, not very easy for the virus. So we got very low down, but maybe some people thought that the virus was gone which it wasn't, of course. So we are, our government is sort of fearing that we are just a few weeks behind the places like Belgium, France, Italy. We'll see. The cases are going up quite a lot, but it's young people, it's not many hospital admissions. It's up, but I mean, we are in November in Norway. So usually we have quite a lot of admissions for respiratory disease at this time. So it's less than that. Yes, I realize it's November, and that means a lot in Norway because uh, you're not going to see the sun for another six years at this point. Uh, <laughs> it's like yeah. that, yes. But that means it's driving people indoors, as is true for all the Northern Hemisphere, and particularly true in Norway. And yet, you haven't really seen a big increase despite that. We are seeing it now, but it's also a matter, like the rest of Europe, we haven't tested a lot but now we're testing much more and um, it is spreading. So depends on how you look at it. If you look at the actual numbers, it isn't that high. If you look at our newspapers, it looks like we are in a catastrophic situation. I mean, is there lockdown fatigue? And if so, how is that being managed? Because that's certainly been an issue in the US. It's definitely lockdown fatigue. And I think it's a complex question because we were talking earlier about trust. And I think, you know, part of the reason why Norway and a lot of other countries have succeeded in the beginning is and was that there is a lot of trust in government, not a special political system, but general trust that government wants to do good and that the public health sector wants to do good. But that trust is not a constant, you know, so they have now performed <laughs> for many months. We are under emergency law, the same thing in, for example, France. And that means that the democratic process in many ways has changed. Every decision about COVID is taken behind closed doors. And um, that was okay in the beginning. It's getting more complicated now, I would say, because... People want answers. Why do we do the different measures that we do? In March, it was a more clean lockdown, meaning restrictions of movements, not the same as in Spain and France, where they were actually, you know, really not allowed to go out, but still pretty clean lockdown. Now we have very many different restrictions nationally. And in some parts of Norway now, you cannot have more than five people in your home and the police can come in. And that's not something that we are used to at all. And these things now contribute to the fatigue, in addition to just the fact that, you know, we are social beings. And the whole concept of having our whole work life and social life be sort of put on hold, more or less, 
for a year or two, that is making people tired. The other thing is that people are smart. They're seeing inconsistencies in these different laws and or guidelines that come out. For example, we in Norway have not been testing at the border and we are seeing a lot of imported cases. And then people ask, you know, why can't I have six people in my home? And we have truck drivers from all over Europe driving in over the border, no testing every day, things like that. Now, you point out such an important consequence of COVID, which is how we think about borders and interacting with our neighbor countries and the consequences of how that affects our thinking. Because we are social beings, as you said, and we all want to interact not only in our cities and states, but also across borders. And how we manage that will be another element of coming out of the COVID crisis. Yes, and you know, Europe in itself, the EU, the European project is open borders. And uh, actually, if you look at the policies in Europe as such, the policy since June has been open borders. There's a website called Reopen Europe from the European Commission. It's not like an activist website. It's really trying to sort of say we need to be moving. And then that's sort of on the European level, but then you have the national level and you have even further down. So I think it's a very important period in Europe, I would say, because the European project as such is to have open borders was created after the Second World War exactly so that we could interact, exactly so that we could have good relationships. And now we are seeing that threatened by sort of neighbors being dangerous. We have had our borders close to Sweden since March. We are extremely close. Tens of thousands of Norwegians have their summer houses in Sweden. They haven't been there, for example. Does that mean, Charlotta, that the Summer houses in Sweden uh, are at a good price. <laughs> no, I think people want to go back. But, but you know, that's one of the things where people, people were happy to do a lot in the spring. It was, um, we have a, a word, I can't translate it, it's called dugnad, which means everybody work for free for the common good. And our government has said, please, we all need to work together now to fight this virus. And we did. In France, they used other metaphors. They used, we fight the war. But in Norway, we have sort of said, we're in this together. Let's do it together. And people really did that and have done it and have been really good at it, I would say. But then, as I was saying, you know, it's when you see that you do your part and then other areas are For example, the truck drivers, as I said, I'm not blaming them in any way, but we're not putting any measures in place so that one, they don't get the virus sort of imported into Norway, and that we also don't increase the fear of foreigners, because that's really a dangerous thing. And I have to say, I I was quite surprised to read in the Norwegian newspaper today that in Uganda, They're using Norwegian technology. They've done it all along so that the truck drivers that test quickly get the results and exactly not to sort of once spread the virus and not spread the fear. So how have things differed from country to country in Europe? How has the political environment affected the way countries are looking at COVID-19? So, as I said in the beginning, in March, where most things, you know, really started to happen in Europe, the different government, I, I cannot speak for absolutely everything, but 
reacted more or less in the same way that they would lock down in some form the country and people more or less accepted that. We could see already some differences and that had to do with your political history. For example, for a very long time, the German Chancellor Angela Merkel, she didn't once use a war metaphor. She didn't want to sort of use that uh, as a way to sort of force the population in one direction. She was very careful and she was very careful to put things in place. In many ways, I wouldn't say that Germany followed the Swedish strategy, which people have a lot of thoughts about and we may speak about that too, but in a way she was very, very good in my opinion at providing tests and doing all she could without sort of using the war metaphors. And she was also very careful about uh, protecting people's privacy with her own, I would say, background, Eastern Germany, Eastern Europe and all of that. So I think the political environment in Europe, uh, the most striking thing is that we started out in Western Europe with quite a lot of trust, with some exceptions. You can see the UK, people didn't really trust the government from the start. And you can see the consequences of that in the situation in the UK from the very beginning. The same in parts of Eastern Europe, where the trust in government is very low. And they don't then believe necessarily that this is for their own good, the lockdowns or the restrictions. So again, the most important thing is not necessarily the political system, but the trust in government and the traditions you have in trusting the government, because you need the public health to do quite important things and probably restrict your movement in some way. But you want to see the benefits coming later on and not only the restrictions. I'm curious, and this is kind of speculative, Charlotta, but politics has really played an important role in the response to the outbreak in the U.S., but the outbreak has played an important role in politics as well. As you've said, that's already happening in Europe, but it's happening against the background of very different political systems from country to country. How is that kind of playing out now? So I'll use Poland as an example, because the protests there are really quite huge against the government and against the COVID policies because they really don't believe that the government you know, uses these restrictions for their own good. And that's because Poland hasn't had a very long history of democracy. And the population there have a lot of reasons to be distrustful. That means that what's happening there and many other places is that one thing is sort of the legitimate protest against that, but there's also all kinds of theories floating around, conspiracy theories, whatever you call it, because, and of course you can say that's silly, but at the same time, we all have a responsibility for not giving those thoughts some fuel, because it's now with most of the European countries making their decisions about the COVID measures behind closed doors. It is actually quite easy to understand why people are getting suspicious. And then that will again, we started talking about the vaccine, that will again be quite important for what, what's happening next. Because if this trust in government goes down and you feel that the only thing that's happening is that you're losing your job, you can't see your relatives, you just lose. And then the, all of a sudden this, this vaccine that the government is going to distribute, you understand that that is going to be a problem. So I think we all have a big responsibility here uh, to sort of help and also talk about the political stuff. It's not only science. 
And of course, we have all been following what has been happening in the US, which is extremely unfortunate because it seems to me like, you know, almost impossible to discuss certain things in the US just because it's so political. Things like masks, for example, which is a thing to discuss. <laughs> well, I think one important message we can send right now is we started out with the very optimistic news on vaccines, but vaccines won't be around for a while. So it's going to be important to keep on using the public health measures that we have to try to limit spread. I think that in the face of a very large outbreak going on right now in most of the world, people should find it a little easier knowing that there's an endpoint, that there might be an endpoint and that a vaccine might really change things. Hopefully we can engage people to do what they really need to do so they're not the last victims of COVID-19. Also, I think there are certain things that we are not doing in Europe and I think also in the US, but I know Europe better. We see a lot of COVID deaths in the nursing homes and among the really vulnerable population living there. And we see that we're not really taking care of them and we could take care of them better. We haven't done anything much in Norway to change that since March. There are two things that we are not doing. We are not testing the people working there. We are not organizing the care so that it minimizes the risk of infecting large groups. And we are not letting relatives come into the nursing homes. That's for months now. And um, I guess um, some of you know, at least, that I lost my father in April. And um, I was not allowed to see him for the last four weeks of his life. And uh, it wasn't, there was no way I can convince anybody that I, you know, I was quarantining myself, I was testing negative, but it was absolutely no. And the same has happened, you know, for thousands of people around. And these things we could have changed so that when the searches came now that we had prepared for that, so that people could access their relatives, that they could know that people are safe when they are in these homes. We have a system for that. You know, we have universal healthcare. It's paid for, we could do it. They could do it in France, they could do it in Spain. And I'm watching the cases in the same thing all over Europe. The worst case fatalities were in the nursing homes. And I'm watching now to see what's happening in Europe, because if that's going to happen again, this fall and winter, it means we haven't done anything to protect those groups. And we could have protected them better. I'm not saying it's possible to do anything 100%, but we have had time to prepare now, and we haven't really done that. And I think that also makes people impatient, at least. Thank you, Charlotta. Thank you for joining us this week. And thank you, Eric and Lindsay, as usual.